Thank you for investing your time in a Duncan's From the Field podcast series. We hope you are getting a ton of value from each episode. Today's episode is pulled from a recent podcast we did with Jay Culture of the Resilient Advisor podcast. We hope you enjoy. On this episode, Duncan McPherson of Pareto Systems joins me to teach you how to become a franchise-ready advisor. This is the Resilient Advisor Podcast, the show for high-performing financial advisors. We bring you the best practices of the industry's top performers so that you can build resilience in your business and your personal life. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Resilient Advisor Podcast. My name is Jay Colton, and joining me for this episode is one of the industry's top thought leaders in practice management and business development, Duncan McPherson of Pareto Systems. He is a well-known industry keynote speaker and author of several books, including his most recent titled, The Advisor's Playbook. Thanks for coming on, Duncan. Jay, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. All right, so usually I script out a few questions before the interview to really outline where we want to go and the message we want to deliver the audience, but based on our podcast pre-call, I know this interview does not need any scripting, giving your passion for the topic that we're going to discuss. So let's get started at a high level and talk about the franchise-ready advisor. What exactly is a franchise-ready advisor? Yeah, so the Franchise Ready Advisor defines someone who uh, essentially says, okay, I've got a great business. Life is good. Uh, I could just ride my inertia or I could invest what I built and shift from a model of organic growth to scalable growth. And basically, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of a human aspiration, it's when an advisor simply says to himself or herself, it's not what I earn that makes me valuable, it's who I become. And to break through to self-actualization, sometimes the most fulfilling way to achieve that is through scalable growth creating a community of advisors that buy into your process and you turn your approach into an intellectual property that you can not only monetize, but you can create distribution and scale and build a great legacy along the way. So specifically, you're talking about the advisor who's built a good practice, built a great practice, and to get to that next level or grow in the way that is fulfilling to them, they need to commercialize their systems and then bring on other advisors that would fit that mold. Is that what you're saying? Well, in essence, uh, first of all, it starts with a mindset where you're not driven by salesmanship. You're driven by stewardship, which means you're not trying to sell something. You're trying to build something. You're building relationships. You're building a client experience. You're building enterprise value. And within that, you're building equity that has no limits. So you're not trading your time for money. 
And what's really key here is having a process within a playbook that you could put in the hands of someone else and say, just add water. This is how we do things. Replicate our success. Let's go a little deeper on the client experience component of that. I know you have some one-on-one coaching programs around the client experience. Can you give us the framework for what you know a, a top-performing advisor would put in place for that experience? Well, the entire approach to shifting from having a book of business to actually having a business, like running a business like a business, is rooted in process. And to go a little more granular, there is a rule called the rule of three. And essentially what it means is anything you do three or more times that has three or more steps should be a documented process that can be repeated. So it, it, is, it does not reside in someone's head. Uh, think about this, Jay. If something is in your head, it's a skill, it's a quality, it's an intention. That's not an intellectual property. When it's documented, it's IP, it's proprietary. And that is the starting point. Now, the beauty here is that there's dual uh, outcomes. There's a dual track. This forces someone to elevate the client experience of existing clients and then also puts them onto a track where they can uh, replicate that. And it's like one of my clients says, he says, why would I bring on 50 more clients when I could bring on one advisor to draft in behind me and replicate my model? And not be left to their own devices to sort of figure things out, but to actually follow something that is proven and predictable in terms of its outcome. So let's go back to that rule of three for a second. Could you give me a simple example inside of a client service experience where that rule of three applies? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the most obvious to me is the onboarding process. So you think about how many times you've onboarded a new client. Now, I know you've got habits and rituals in terms of how you do that. Is it executed the same way every time? Is that process documented? Uh, you know, if you think about it, in the, in the spirit of beginning with the end in mind, I always say to an advisor, what would happen if you or someone on your team would take a month off tomorrow? What would happen? And for a lot of advisors, that wouldn't be good. And that's because everybody's just sort of doing their own thing. It's maverick talent. And my view is the breakthrough occurs the moment everyone's become obsolete, meaning somebody else could slide in and in short order, replicate, execute a process with absolute precision. So in our world, there are 10 essential steps to onboarding. Now, the outcome of onboarding is to fast-track a new client to advocate status. So 
So if you think about this, Jay, there's three types of clients. There's customers, there's clients, and there's advocates. Customers buy something. They dabble. Clients buy into something. They empower the advisor fully, but they don't refer. They might endorse and say nice things about the advisor, but that doesn't lead to an introduction. An advocate goes out of their way to introduce a friend to their financial advisor. And not because they're trying to help the advisor grow their business. It's because they feel they're doing their friend a disservice by not making the introduction. And that's engineered. A, a financial advisor is at his or her highest level of referability very early in a relationship because the, the, the process is so fresh and new. You can, you can convert a new client to an advocate in 90 days or less through a very precise onboarding process. And so that would be one example of the rule of three, the onboarding process, 10 linked and sequential steps that are executed consistently without deviation. And it just instills this sense in a new client's mind. Wow. Like where's this advisor been all my life? I've never seen anything so incredibly professional. Now I have to think that that is actually counterintuitive to most seasoned financial advisors where they probably, at least in my experience, feel that the advocates come after they've established a long track record with them. I really like this concept. In the first 90 days, you're setting the precedent and that's where you have to put a lot of focus to turn them into an advocate. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's not to say you can't go back to existing clients and reframe and reintroduce yourself to create and convert existing clients into advocates. That too is a process. But mm -hmm. there's self-fulfilling prophecies everywhere. You live by the rules you set, right? I believe, and I've seen it validated, that advocacy can happen virtually immediately. And a lot of this is by virtue of contrast. Think about this, Jay. If you're my financial advisor and I've just come on board with you, and I've left the financial advisor I had for seven years, who drifted into a pattern of, you know, just sort of mailing it in, taking me for granted, that bar is low. By virtual contrast, you dazzle me in the first 90 days, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like, finally, this is what I've wanted. I go out of my way. You, th you think about introductions. People don't introduce a friend to a financial advisor because they were asked to do it. They feel compelled to do it. And that's what that onboarding process can create. And again, this is not a theory. This is not, you know, blue sky, be positive. No, no. This is confirmed day in and day out by the advisors we work with. So the idea for recording this particular podcast came from a LinkedIn post that you did last month on the Franchise Ready Advisor. And in the post, and I'll have links to this in the show notes, you talked about the organizational chart and how it leads into the procedures manual. And I'm assuming that this rule of three is embedded in that paradigm. How, how important is it for the advisor to have a written out procedures manual, a written out organizational chart? And then as a follow-up question to that, is it different for the wirehouse advisor versus somebody on the independent side of this business? Yeah, so great questions. First of all, it's not optional. You think about it, every financial advisor, uh, they're in the knowledge for profit business. They think for a living. They're not brokers selling something. They're building something. And 
they, it's not like they're selling something tangible. They're promoting the promise of the future. I mean, that's abstract, and there's so much noise and commoditization occurring. They have to take their quality skills and intentions and transform them into intellectual properties. This is how they differentiate. You know, I'm not ever going to trivialize a financial advisor's technical ability in terms of how they manage money, but I mean, that is commoditized. I can get that somewhere else. What is it about the way you approach things that are proprietary to you? It's your practice management process. It's your relationship management process. And I'm telling you, if you strive to consistently attract not only high upmarket business owners, professionals, and executives, you can't just be based on your technical ability. The moment they realize you run your business like a business and you understand standard operating procedures, you've instantly differentiated. Now, your point about the distinction between the wirehouse or the independent, I mean, it's not really a factor. I mean, obviously, an independent is in business for themselves, not by themselves. So they have uh, a more significant payout, but also more obligation and responsibility. Yes, it is essential. But in the wirehouse environment as well, it is key to break any perception of being a broker. And this is how you know, that's achieved. This is the starting point for that. But I'll tell you, Jay, if you want, um, if you want to shift from sort of a stream of consciousness and sort of talking about talking about stuff, that's great. If you want to shift into a framework for how this is built out, we can do that because I frame this around three words, the why, the who, and the how. So why is this such an unbelievable idea and why is the opportunity perfect right now? Who is the addressable audience? And how do you actually deploy a process? We can follow that framework and I can break it down. And, you know, as you mentioned in the beginning, I mean, there's all kinds of resources we can make available uh, so that if somebody doesn't want to reinvent this wheel, uh, we can give them a roadmap uh, around that. Well, let's do it. Let, let's go deep on this model. So let's start with the why. Yeah, always a great place, right? So I believe this is beyond the next frontier. I, I think of this as the perfect storm almost once in a lifetime. I've been doing this for a long time, been around the block. There are two incredible forces at play right now. And this is really what galvanizes the why. The first force is demography. So how many advisors out there are anywhere between one, three, five years out from an exit? Significant. Right? They're on the home stretch. Yep. Yeah, it's significant. Well, you think about the marketplace in general. I mean, I, I've read and you've read. 10,000 Americans retire every day. It's a big number. Mm -hmm. So how many advisors are on the home stretch thinking, okay, how do I monetize in a year, in three years and five years and get it right and make sure that my clients are in good hands? You know, so my legacy is intact. It's a, it's a massive, massive number. The second force is 
unbelievable commoditization. Forces at work that are emphasizing what a financial advisor costs instead of what they're worth. And, you know, look at the, look at the marketplace in general there. I mean, it boggles my mind. Blockbuster had an opportunity to buy Netflix, but they convinced themselves, we've got this. Mm-hmm. It's all good. We're fine. Gone. Yep. You know, you look at uh, Toys R Us and uh, Amazon. I mean, unbelievable. And so it's Darwinian across the board, but it's not about survival of the fittest. It's who can adapt. And that's what's going to distinguish who merely survives this commoditization and who can thrive from this commoditization. So, Duncan, so, so as, that's, sorry, go ahead. No, as a sidebar to that, what I have found from our consulting practice is we'll run across the advisor that recognizes the demographics issues, recognizes the commoditization. They are three to five years away from hanging it up, but they just don't see the urgency. They either don't care or they're just going to, quote, write it out. I, I think there was research out of the uh, uh, advisor transitions organization that said only 8% of transactions in the independent space ever go to fruition. And it's that, I don't want to say apathy, but just lack of urgency that I've seen out there. And I'm curious of your thoughts when you're out working with these advisors. Yeah, it's a great point. And all of that is incredibly valid. And which, which, by the way, amplifies the need for an advisor who wants to shift from organic growth to scalable growth to have an advisor fit process. So, so once the advisor shifts from organic to scale, they need to hang out their shingle and fill their pipeline with prospective advisors. And then they need to work those advisors through a fit process so that the advisor isn't trying to convince the, you know, the potential advisor to do this, the potential advisor, the prospective advisor is convincing the franchise ready advisor. That's what a fit process does. And part of that reveals where the urgency and the apathy and the legacy motivators are. Because at the end of the day, Jay, if I'm, if I'm franchise ready and you're an advisor in my pipeline, I'm going to say it right up front. Jay, I can't want this more than you do. This isn't something I'm asking you to do. I don't want you to buy this. I want you to buy into this. I want to see the alignment of interests that this is a good fit because it's not about who I'm looking for. It's who I'm suited for. I am only going to attract advisors who want to make sure the client is elevated. They, they can transition uh, gradually and with dignity and uh, be liberated to enjoy the last 12, 36 months or whatever it is as they transition out. But it's got to be a good fit. There has to be an alignment of interest. So that fit process is absolutely essential. And uh, that's, that's built into what we do. But here's what I know. When the why is clear, the how becomes that much more powerful. And I'll never trivialize the how, but true north is that alignment of interest. So a major part of our approach is creating that alignment and making sure the why is crystal clear on both sides. Okay. And, and then so the who part of your model, that's where the advisor fit process comes in. Is there anything else in that component? 
Yeah, absolutely. And hey, I just want to say something about demography that's really important because there's multipliers everywhere to this consolidated approach. You see, a lot of senior advisors are asked by their clients, hey, what happens when you're not here? Mm-hmm. I mean, the writing's on the wall, right? Yep. And if the advisor cannot get out in front of that and say, look, my continuity and secession plan is completely solidified. What's happening here is that they're undermining the strength of those existing relationships. Because if I'm a client with an advisor who has no vision, no pathway to family investment legacy and continuity and secession, they're not indispensable to me. Because think about this. There are a lot of clients out there, first generation, earned money, financially independent. And they're thinking about their own continuity and secession plan. And everybody knows, it's crystal clear, that when first generation earned money changes hands and becomes found money to that second generation, all kinds of elements are at risk. So an advisor who gets this right is actually dramatically improving how relevant they are to a client who has their own continuity and secession uh, issues uh, at play as well. Okay, so that's a major component there. But to segue to the who, there are three addressable audiences um, who could buy into this. So if the advisor wants to shift from organic to scale, here are your target markets, for lack of a better term. And remember something. It's more important to reach people who count than it is to count the number of people you're reaching. There are a lot of people out there, but you want to zero in on these key motivators. Here's number one, the demographic, the guy who is, or the lady who is 58, 63, a year, three years, five years out, and they want to get out in front and when they want to get it right. So there's an opportunity to buy that business, uh, have it financed through transition and growth, uh, let that advisor take some money off the table, ease out either gradually or a little bit more accelerated and make sure that everything's intact and elevated. That's the first addressable audience. The second addressable audience, I call this uh, the protege. The protege advisor is a younger advisor and they've come to the realization there is too much friction, there's too much commoditization and they're looking down the road three to five years and they're like, I'm not viable on my own. I, there, I, I just can't do it. You know, there are firms that are continually raising the bar, changing grids, and basically uh, making those advisors obsolete. They're gone. And they, these advisors are skilled. They have good qualities and intentions, but they have not figured out the panoramic approach to being a financial advisor with stewardship. Those are advisors that you can go out and ha- attract and have them draft in, tuck in behind you. You, multi- you. you create lift for them, and there's a vein of gold of untapped opportunity in there. And then the third addressable audience Hey, is Duncan, the- Duncan, can I stop for a yeah. second on this protege? Are you finding yeah. more protege opportunities in the wirehouse just because of their recruitment model, or is there still opportunity in the independent space? Yeah, it's a great point. So in Canada and in the United States, the banks and the wires who still are in that sort of hunter-gatherer recruit mode 
bringing on these protégés, and the problem is they leave them to their own devices, to twist in the wind to figure it out for themselves. And you're right. I mean, um, it's, it's, a, it's an environment where uh, it is Darwinian, it's tough, and, you know, the beauty is to the enterprise, to the firm in general, I mean, their number one objective is retain the assets and strengthen the relationships, right? Competitor-proof the relationships. So it's a great way to, to appeal to an objective that the, the firm globally has, but it's a real win for the advisor to have that, to, to improve their bench strength and have that advisor draft in behind. So yeah, long story short, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So I'm sorry for interrupting you. Number three on your who? Yeah. So the third is uh, what we call the remnant. And the remnant is, um, so you've got this advisor who's thinking to himself, look, I, 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 I have no interest in getting out. I like what I do. The hassle factor and the um, friction is high and, and there's things I don't like about the business, but there's other things I do like. So I'm not looking to get out. But I would like to have a bit of a work-optional lifestyle. I want the business to serve my life, not the other way around. So that advisor will typically have about 200 clients. And he's had the eureka moment around the Pareto principle. He knows 80% of his business comes from 20% of his clients. And he's saying, I should be investing at least 80% of my time on that 20%. So that advisor's got 50 clients who carry the freight. So what the advisor says is, I am going to disassociate from the other 150 that represent only 20% of my business. So that becomes a remnant. That 150 clients becomes a remnant. So the advisor says, I want 50 clients. I want to go live my life. I want to keep doing what I'm doing, but I don't want to you know, work any harder. For, for that advisor, it's like going from a hammer to a nail gun in terms of efficiency. So now he's got 150 clients he's got to find a home for. And within that 150, there's a movable middle. There's, a, there's again, a vein of gold of untapped opportunity. At least people have been neglected, not consciously, but they've been neglected. And there are advisors who buy these remnants and squeeze so much juice out of the orange and dramatically elevate those clients, they're like, gosh, why didn't this happen five years ago? This is amazing. Mm -hmm. So I've seen advisors buy 40 or $50 million worth of, of business, a remnant, and turn it into 75 in short order just because there's just incredible veins of gold. There's this, there's this field of untapped opportunity uh, within that. So those are the three addressable audiences. So why is the forces at work and the multipliers the who is the three addressable audiences. And then, of course, you've got the how. So, so Jay, do you want to chime in on that? No, not at all. I'm excited to <laughs> learn about the how. Okay. Well, the how, of course, is the, the process. And the first thing I want to be crystal clear about is the dual track. Okay? So I want every advisor who aspires to become franchise ready to prove out the concept by getting their own house in order. And not that there's any disorder. Uh, the advisors we work with, it's not like there's problems or damage and things we have to fix. 
there's just gaps. I mean, I'm really big on doing a gap analysis, not a SWOT analysis. I don't think in terms of strengths and weaknesses. I think in terms of, okay, every advisor has a fit process. Every advisor has an onboarding process, but there are gaps. And I want to be clear on what those gaps are. So it generally takes plus or minus about six months to get their house in order to elevate their existing clients, to go back to their existing clients and reframe and reintroduce themselves to their clients to strengthen and maximize those relationships. And what's really powerful about that exercise is the advisors realize that the relationships are good, but there's a little bit of loyalty fatigue through familiarity where those clients, they like the advisor, but they don't have the complete picture. They don't fully understand or appreciate the advisor's panoramic value. And so when they go through that reframe, uh, not only do they document the procedures and create their playbook in real time, they're also strengthening, competitor-proofing, maximizing, and creating advocacy within those clients. And generally, it takes about six months. Now, for some advisory teams, it's been four months. For other teams, it's been nine or 12. It doesn't really matter. I mean, my, my mindset here is done is better than perfect. Let's just get it done. Mm-hmm. And there, uh, uh, there's an inflection point that occurs where around six months, the advisor realizes, okay, I am at least 1.0 franchise ready. So that is the starting point. I can break that down a little bit further, but uh, you got any thoughts or comments on that? No, not at all. Let's break that down. <laughs> okay. So the gaps generally, uh, and not to oversimplify it, but generally, uh, a team that will help make franchise ready has between six and 10 gaps that we have to address. Now, I use the uh, symbolism of cracking the code, unlocking your full potential to go from organic to scale. So there's three numbers in that combination. So all of the gaps fit within these three numbers. So you have three core drivers in your business. You have your wealth management process. Now, as you can imagine, Jay, most of the advisory teams we work with are pretty good there. Their wealth management process, they don't wing it. They don't make it up as they go. They're pretty enlightened, pretty sophisticated. They have a great process. Okay, there might be a few gaps here or there, but maybe, maybe you some can lim- imagine that. Are they benchmarking against their uh, competitive environment? For example, a Morgan Stanley advisor benchmarking other Morgan Stanley advisors just due to you know the resources that are available to that advisor or, or that team? Yeah, it's a great question. And yes, some advisors do that. One of the big distinctions is um, uh, I I don't want the advisor to fixate solely on products, pricing, and performance. All of that is important, but again, that's commoditized. Remember, the wealth management process is the minimum requirement. That's just one number in the combination. Uh, On a scale of 1 to 10, most of the advisors we work with, their wealth management process is an 8 or 9 out of 10. And there, there, there are benchmarks and there are uh, ways to prove that out. But my main thing here is to reveal is that that's not what separates the best from the rest. That's not how someone goes franchise ready because that's commoditized. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Vanguard will manage my money for 30 basis points. I mean, do you want to compete with that? And, <laughs> right. and look down the road, the trajectory there, not good. That's so right. How do you, how do you, how do you differentiate? You don't differentiate on the wealth management process. That's called checking a box that's in play. Okay. Minimum requirement. So how the are you getting number? Hey, Duncan, before you move sorry, on, how are you getting to that number? Is it a questionnaire? Is it a subjective assessment by the advisor? Um, it's both. It, it's, it's all of it. We do have a questionnaire. It is subjective. There are specific things by virtue of contrast. You know, like if I say to an advisor, look, are you a billion dollar team currently managing 300 million? And they say, well, I'd like to think so. I say, okay, so let me compare you to a billion dollar team that we have. Let's just draw some comparisons there. Mm -hmm. And it's not just mileage and, you know, other sort of um, mystical elements. There are specific things that we can compare and contrast between a $300 million team and a billion dollar team. Okay. But the main key is to open their eyes to help them understand that they're not just managing money. They're managing a practice and they're managing people. And it's their practice management process and the relationship management process that not only have the biggest gaps, but are the most proprietary. Okay, so if you think about the second number in the combination, that's the practice management process. That goes beyond core competencies of managing money. This manages the the enterprise. This manages and creates a client experience. This is where the rule of three, standard operating procedures, the playbook, the org chart you are referencing. This is where the shift from a book of business to running the business like a business really becomes. If you think of Michael Gerber, I'm a big fan of the e-myth. His statement was so precise. He said, there is a difference between working in the business and working on the business. Working in the business is trading time for money. You're a technician with technical ability, and that's, that's your approach. Working on the business is building something that you can scale, that has enterprise value beyond AUM, and can be replicated with reasonable predictability. So if, if the advisor's an 8 out of 10 on the wealth management process, that same advisor's probably a 6 out of 10 on the practice management process. So they do a lot of things right. It's not like there's flaws. There's just gaps. And those gaps could be in the fit process, the onboarding process, the service model, and so on. So we want to bring the practice management process up to the same level as the wealth management process. And one of the first ways we do that is to depersonalize the relationships. Okay? That's counterintuitive. What do you mean? uh, Well, absolutely. And that's a great comment, by the way. Depersonalizing really comes down to this. Okay? So advocacy empowerment, loyalty, come down to one word, trust. And every advisor will agree with that. But I say, okay, if trust is so important, what is it that your clients trust? Now, when I ask, if I lined up 100 financial advisors and asked them one at a time, what do your clients trust? Most advisors would say, well, they trust me. They trust my qualities, my skills, and intentions. And I'm like, none of that is proprietary. It's really important. But that's just table stakes. That's just the beginning. You see, I want a client 
to have as much trust for the practice and the process as they do for the person. If all of my clients trust me, I can't scale. But if my clients have a visible understanding, a, a, a conscious awareness for my practice and my process, I'm scalable. Hey, Jay, it's no different than Ray Kroc realizing that he was not solely in the hamburger business. He was in the people business and the real estate business. He wanted distribution and scale. And the way they did that is process. So, so we want the practice management process to be at the same level as the wealth management process. And that's the second number in the combination. Gets back now, to the idea of the advisor being able to step away from the business for a month and nobody would know. Is that how you know you're hitting a nine or a 10 in that space? Well, you know what's funny about that? I'll ask an advisor. I'll say, okay, what happens if you take a month off tomorrow? <laughs> the, the most common response I get after the long pause is when the advisor says to me, that's a scary thought. But the only thing scarier than that is what happens if my assistant takes a month off. <laughs> That's right. And, and the advisor will say, I don't even really know what she does, but my clients love her. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you are at the mercy of maverick talent. Okay. You got to get everything she does out of her head, not to make her obsolete, but to actually liberate her to actually be better. And that way you're not at the mercy of just a person. You're running a business like a business. That's practice management. And you have a process. It's very powerful. Yeah. Now, here's what's cool. Having a good wealth management process and having a good practice management process organically makes an advisor referable. But here's the question. Why is it that you and I, in our day-to-day -day interactions, Jay, why is it we see so many advisors who are referable and yet don't get many actual good quality referrals? It's because of the third number. The third number in the process, this is how you unlock, this is how you crack the code, is the relationship management process. This is everything to do with branding and articulating value so that clients actually understand and appreciate everything the advisor does. And it's a process to demystify. What does demystify mean? Just remove the mystery. Like I say to advisors all the time, do your clients know exactly who your ideal client is? And they say, well, I think so. And I say, okay, so how many referrals did you get in the last 12 months? The advisor says six. Okay, well, that says you're referable. How many of those six were perfect clients? Uh, one. Okay, that tells me that your clients have no idea to introduce who to introduce you. You're referable, but they don't understand your ideal client profile. That's relationship management. Removing the mystery for a client says, this is our ideal client. This is who we're suited for. This is who we're a good fit for. That's, that's relationship management. Another question I'll ask in the gap analysis, I'll say to the advisor, do your clients understand and appreciate everything you do? Or do they understand what you've done for them to this point in the relationship? Most advisors say, well, the latter. And I say, okay, so how many things do you do over the lifetime of a relationship with a client? What could you do for a client over the lifetime and into the next generation? You know what most, most advisors say to me when I ask them that? Client reviews. Well, I say, 
how many things could you do in, in total? How many things? And you know what the advisors say to me? Do I don't say? know, a lot. <laughs> and I say, well, if you don't know, they don't know. So here's what's interesting. I'll say, you've got good qualities, good skills, good intentions. Get all of that out of your head. List out for me how many things you could do for a client over the lifetime. You know what the average number is? 85 what? things. 85 things over the lifetime. And I say, look at that list. Look at that number. That makes you fee worthy. Duncan, that makes you. Sorry, go ahead. No, is that list of 85 things uh, exclusive to the wealth management process or does it include other social type things to do with a client? It includes everything. Everything. Okay. So it, it, client it, dinner, it, go to a. Uh, Go golfing, do client reviews, everything. Okay, let's do a little exercise here. You got a pen and paper in front of you? I do. This is a little peek behind the curtain, okay? So let's just say you're an advisor. And I know you've got lots of credentials, and you know the business as well as anybody, Jay. So you'll, you'll I think, appreciate this. So I'll say to the advisor, I'll say, okay, so you do 85 things for a client. Let's break this down. So just write down the number 85. Okay, 85. I see the problem with that 85 is that none of it's proprietary. I can get it somewhere else. And your client will never remember 85 things. So here's what I want you to do. Above the 85, I want you to write out six pillars. Just draw six pillars across the page, about an inch long, about an inch apart from each other. I say to the advisor, all the 85 are supported by those six pillars. So let's break it down. The first pillar is wealth management, everything to do with wealth management. Okay. Now, nothing about what you do in wealth management is truly proprietary. I can get it somewhere else. And again, Vanguard will manage my money for 30 basis points. So you're not a wealth manager. Wealth management is part of your process. It's one pillar. Okay. The second pillar is risk management. So I'll say to the advisor, do you offer every form of insurance, every insurance solution, long-term care, critical illness, uh, disability? And do your clients know that you are in the risk management space and that it's part of your process? You, you're not a broker of insurance. Risk management is part of your process. Okay? The third pillar is tax. Now, most advisors I meet are pretty tax savvy. Every decision they make is tax sensitive. And where necessary, they'll engage an outside service provider to give the client the complete picture around tax. Okay? The fourth pillar would be estate, right? So family investment legacy, continuity succession, right? The advisor, or sorry, the client becomes financially independent. And at that moment, the burden shifts from will I have enough to what becomes of my legacy? That's part of the process. The fifth pillar would be everything to do with cash, right? Debt, mortgage, lines of credit, liquidity, all of those facilities, that's part of the process. And then the last piece would be philanthropy, right? So client becomes financially independent, starts to say, okay, uh, charitable giving, it's not just what money is, it's what it can do, uh, bursaries, foundations. Okay, so bottom line is all those 85 are supported by those six pillars. So here's what I tell you to the advisor to do. Above those six pillars, draw yourself an arch, an overarching sort of umbrella. So in other words, 
you're not asking a client to buy something within the 85. You're asking them to buy into something. So just above the arch, write down the number one. You're asking them to buy into one thing, that the advisor has developed and refined a process that puts every piece of that puzzle together for them as their life unfolds and their needs evolve. It's not something they can outgrow. It's what they'll grow into. In fact, beside the number one, just write the letter CFO, which in my world means complete family office. Okay. I'm a financial advisor. I'm a CFO for my clients. They're trying to achieve a work optional lifestyle. So I've developed and refined a process that puts all these pieces together. Wealth management, part of my process. Service, part of my process. Planning, part of my process. Risk management, part of my process. The 85 things are like puzzle pieces. The process is the picture. You can't build a puzzle without the picture. That's relationship management. So I just defined a financial advisor's value in five minutes. That's the difference. That's what relationship management is. This is what takes an advisor from being referable to actual introductions and referability, actual referrals, is the client can internalize and then socialize that value. I love this cracking the code model. That is just an incredible amount of valuable information for financial advisors, Duncan. Before we wrap up, is there anything else they should know about this model? Well, I, I don't pretend it's all things to all people. Um, the, probably the best next step, as you said, is to uh, look for us on LinkedIn, just Duncan McPherson. I'll pop right up. And if somebody wants to pop the hood and kick some tires, uh, the next step would be to do a gap analysis, just to reveal where those six to 10 things are that exist in your current approach that could be addressed in the next six months that could not only elevate and improve measurable referability, but could position you for franchise readiness. And then if somebody wants to go beyond the gap analysis, we have one-to-one -one consulting. Uh, we have one-to-many in our mastermind sessions that we do. Uh, and that's all available people can can learn about by talking to us or um, going to our website uh, at paredosystems.com but uh, jay i love talking about this and it's all engineered this is engineered and uh i love taking an advisor and helping them crack that code as you said yeah your passion is very very evident and i appreciate it as well it looks like your next available mastermind is january 25th and could you give listeners a little overview of what it's like to attend one of your mastermind sessions? Well, yeah, uh, we generally do them every month. And the beauty about the mastermind is it's just that. It's not, you know, one of us data dumping a group for a day. It's an interaction. It's everybody coming to the table and opening up and being forthright about um, what their goals are, what keeps them up at night, what they're trying to accomplish, and uh, there is a synergy that comes out of that that's beneficial to everybody. And there's validation, there's confirmation around what you're doing right, and there's also revelations about the minor adjustments you can make. 
And, um, you know, the big thing is it's an investment of time, but it's a great opportunity to detach from the noise and work on your business. I mean, it's like, it's like the, the lumberjack who's too busy cutting down wood doesn't have time to sharpen their axe. I mean, this is sharpening the axe right here. And um, they get to benefit from all the people that are in the room. It's usually like that, that session you talked about in January, the caliber of people that are in that room uh, in a month are shocking. I've been saying, Jay, for years that the people who like this the most actually need it the least, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's who attends these things. Well, for more information, listeners, go to ParetoSystems.com. And for information about Duncan speaking, go to DuncanSpeaks.com. Also, if you're not following him on LinkedIn, I highly recommend it. He puts really, really good content out there for the financial advisor community. Duncan, thanks so much for coming on the Resilient Advisor Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jay. We'll see you in the new year. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this actionable podcast. We also post from the field videos weekly on Duncan's LinkedIn and Pareto Systems YouTube channel. And we post everything we do on our homepage at ParetoSystems.com. Make it a great day.